Speaking of, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is back in the legislature, winning a seat more than seven years after she left. The new United Conservative Party leader defeated four opponents to win a by-election in Brooks Medicine Hat last night. She says her win will set the tone for the coming months. We have a big fight in front of us, but I am excited because history has taught us that it's when Albertans' backs are against the wall that we are at our very best. I didn't get into politics to be a diplomat. I didn't get into politics to seek the praise of woke columnists or activists in Eastern Canada. Well, joining me now is Max Fawcett. He's lead columnist with the National Observer. Welcome back. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm great. Yeah, the the uh, <laughs> the victory speech, eh? the back against the wall. It always sounds like she cribs stuff out of Rocky movies, but I, I'm wondering what you made of, of all of that. Well, I mean, you know, I guess I'm I guess she would define me as a woke columnist in Calgary. But, um, you know, I, I think the idea of Albertans backs being against the wall is, is a little bit absurd. You know, the the economy here is booming right now and the commodity prices are, are uh, pretty, pretty high. Uh, oil and gas companies are more profitable than they've ever been. The idea that we're hard done by or, or our backs are against the wall is, is a bit of a fiction. And I'm not sure that, that it's one that's going to play well with, with the broader public. I mean, you look at the, the by-election results, um, the NDP candidate there won 17 out of 26 polls in Medicine Hat. In the 2019 election, the NDP candidate won exactly zero polls in Medicine Hat. So, you know, the, the, she is... Daniel Smith is not as strong uh, as I think a lot of people thought she was going to be. You know, she didn't win the leadership by the, by the convincing margin that Pierre Poiliev did. She didn't win this by-election by as much as the, the MLA who, who resigned won it by. You know, there's a lot of signs that suggest that her message is not resonating with Albertans in the way that I think people in the UCP hope it will. Uh, and she has, you know, five or six months to, to turn that around. We'll, we'll see if she can do it. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, it's, this is fast approaching. The election campaign is fast approaching. Uh, what do you think in this case? I mean, cl- clearly the NDP are, st- are just watching this unfold, right? But going into this, uh, going into the next five, six months, where where do both sides of, in this fight have to have to try to make up ground? Do you think? Well, the NDP has to has to make up ground in Calgary. Uh, th- that is where the election is going to be won or lost for them. They they at this point, basically have the entire city of Edmonton on lockdown. I think they're going to win every single seat there, probably by, by substantial margins. Uh, and, I, you know, they may win a few seats in, in other parts of Alberta, but it, it's going to be a tough slog. It really is going to come down to Calgary. And they need to convince Calgarians that, you know, they are trustworthy with the economy. They, they you know, they're a, a government that, that can be uh, counted on to, to sort of manage uh, job-oriented things. I think that's sort of where the NDP brand is is weakest. And and to the you know to their credit, where where Rachel Notley and her team have spent a lot of time and and uh, energy trying to kind of you know convince people that that they can in fact be counted on for for the UCP and for Danielle Smith. It's really is, does she take the issues of day-to-day Albertans seriously? You know, she's talked a lot about the Constitution and about COVID nineteen and how uh, you know people who do, who were unvaccinated, were the most discriminated against in, in her lifetime. You know, that, that stuff doesn't play well with the average Albertan. And, and we've seen recent polls come out that suggest that, that, you know, that show her far behind the NDP, uh, which is, is sort of an unusual state of affairs here in Alberta. So she has to convince people she isn't a radical, uh, that she isn't sort of out to, to shake things up uh, in ways that are, are upsetting for a lot of people, that she isn't 
you know, the, the Alberta version of Donald Trump or, or Sarah Palin, uh, that she's, you know, more of a moderate. And it, it's a it's a tight rope for her to walk because the more moderate she is, the more she's going to upset the base that elected her to be the leader, it, it, just in the same way that Jason Kenney ended up uh, getting thrown out of the party uh, by people who felt he was too moderate on COVID-19. So, you know, there's a lot to watch it, you know, never a dull day in Alberta politics. And I think that's especially true over the next few months. Yeah, we saw a bit of the reflections of that in the U.S. midterms yesterday, where those who were sort of trying to relitigate the 2020 election or relitigate uh, COVID measures didn't do very well. Those who were kind of looking to the, to the, today's problems and you know, seemed to be, at least on both sides of the fence in the states, seemed to fare better. Yeah, I, I think that is one of the, the really surprising takeaways from, from last night. I think a lot of people were certainly bracing for or um, you know, excited about uh, you know a red wave where the Republicans would would take the House in in spectacular fashion, win back the Senate, and and Donald Trump would be on his way to to the White House in 2024. And that that is simply not what happened. A lot of the Republican candidates uh, that that really were trying to relitigate old fights, like you said, uh, were sent to defeat. And you know, I think that it reflects a, a attitude among a lot of voters right now, which is they just want things to work. They want the basic functioning of government uh, to, to do what it's supposed to do. They want to be able to get their passports. They want inflation to come down. They want gas prices to be more affordable. They want to be able to afford a house. And, you know, the, the politicians who tilt at windmills and pursue ideological fantasies are not going to be looked upon with favor. And, and there's definitely a lesson there for for the UCP, for Daniel Smith, for for conservatives in in Alberta and in Canada, I think the question is number one: Can they learn that lesson? And number two: Can they can they apply it without alienating uh, their supporters? That that's sort of the the eternal challenge is trying to find that sweet spot between being moderate, being approachable, and, and speaking to a large percentage of people's concerns, and not upsetting the smaller group of people who you know, give you lots of donations, volunteer for your campaigns and really kind of provide the energy uh, for the conservative movement right now. Pierre Poliev was in Vancouver today doing just that, by the way, at a small grocery store, uh, sort of a campaign style event talking about inflation and high costs. One gets the idea, of course, he hadn't been out to do media appearances in a very long time. He was asked about the convoy. He was clearly going to be asked about his support for the convoy because the inquiry is going on. Here's what he had to say. A Polyev government will put the most violent offender, repeat offenders behind bars, reinforce our borders to keep illegal drugs and guns out, put an end to this taxpayer-subsidized uh, program of uh, paying for people to use dangerous narcotics, and instead put that money into safe recovery programs. Uh, Pierre Polyev today. So you can see that he's attempting to try to talk, what, do what you've been talking about, which is Talk about issues that matter, like in Vancouver, clearly an area where the Conservatives need to do well in the next election on the Lower Mainland, talking about things like inflation and crime and so forth, homelessness. Um, what do you think of the message? I think it's, it's, a, it's a credible message. You know, I said on Twitter the other day that he has more, more game than the last two polit- uh, Conservative leaders combined. And, and I think it really shows in these sorts of situations. You know, I understand that there are things that he says and does that are that are polarizing and and um, you know not attractive to a lot of people. But you know, if you're a young person in Vancouver who can't afford a home and and really has no hope of being able to afford a home, what he's talking about and the way he's talking about it, I think really is going to connect with them in a way that 
conservative leaders, you know, even back through Stephen Harper, have simply not been able to connect with young people. I think, you know, his message about, uh, you know, drug use down the downtown east side, the, the approach that's been taken to to helping people deal with addiction, I think it is going to resonate with a lot of people who who look at the situation in in Vancouver and sort of say, well, this this isn't working, right? This is not this is not helping anyone. So, you know, I think I think he will make some inroads in places that surprise some people. I think, you know, he still has a lot of vulnerabilities and, and certainly one of them is his his allergy to talking to the media. You know, I think trying to make the media out to be the enemy the way certainly Donald Trump has in the United States is not going to go over well, I think, with a large percentage of the Canadian public. And, and it's a bit puzzling to me because he's actually quite good on his feet. I don't, I don't really understand why he evades and avoids the media to the extent that he does. But, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that that's a strategy that, that is going to serve him well over the next few years because he can connect with, with groups and with members of the public that, that he needs to win the next election. And, and the only way you do that is by talking to them. Max, it seemed like a weird, I mean, I know there's a lot of brinksmanship in this, but it seemed like a weird tactic by the premiers to sort of sabotage these meetings as they were happening. Very weird. Uh, You know, I think Canadians, regardless of their partisan affiliations, are are looking at the healthcare system right now and seeing that it it is just sort of desperately overworked, overtaxed, you know, underfunded. It, it, It is not working the way it needs to. And for the premiers to try to turn this into leverage or, or to make some sort of political point just feels like they're, they're not reading the room correctly. You know, like the, the feds came to the table and said that they would give them more money, but that they need conditions on the money. And I think that is totally reasonable. You look at um, some of the COVID funding that the federal government gave to the provinces, uh, billions of dollars went unaccounted for in Alberta and Ontario. Um, you know, if you're the government looking at that, the federal government, why would you cut another blank check to the provinces when they've shown you know, certainly some of them at least can't account for money you already gave them. So I don't really understand the provinces behaving this way. I think we, you know, there was a statement from the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions basically saying there's not a, you know, a health system in the country that doesn't need money right now and we need to get it in there as soon as possible. They should just accept the conditions um, and, and, and get the money into the hospitals, into the healthcare system where it's needed uh, for frontline uh, providers and for patients, because um, this is not a time for a political bun fight. Yeah, one of the things that I found most interesting interviewing uh, Dr. Alika Lafontaine, who's the head of the CMA at the Canadian Medical Association, was more than a lot of healthcare professionals were watching these meetings, hoping for something to hang on to. They were hoping for a little good news. And maybe in some ways where you're absolutely right, where the premiers didn't read the room, was that there was an anticipation because this meeting hadn't been held in person since 2018 and so forth. There was an anticipation that we would see our politicians collaborate, recognizing how bad it is out there for healthcare professionals. And when they were watching on, you could sort of see it in the subtext of the CMA's letter when this fell apart yesterday, the disappointment there that there wasn't something positive to emerge from this, that they didn't have a deal they could look to and say, okay, they've hurt us. Yeah, I mean, I think it really speaks to a zero-sum view of politics by a lot of politicians where you know someone has to win and someone has to lose and they want to be on the winning side. And I just think that misunderstands the way the rest of us see it and and certainly the way the people who are doing these important jobs see it, which is the political credit is not even the the 10th most important part of the conversation right now. And 
you know, given everything that they have gone through over the last few years, everything they've sacrificed, you know, I think that we have asked so much of them uh, just helping us get through the pandemic and everything else it, to, to not put their needs first, to not sort of make sure that, that they get the money they need and, and we'll sort out the political credit later it is just kind of really an indictment of, of where our politics are right now. And, and the fact that, you know, you, you look at why a lot of people are tuned out, it's stuff like this, you know, it's stuff where, where it's more important who gets the win than, than who helps the people. And, you know, I think every politician should be invested in having, having the public uh, engaged and, and uh, you know, involved in the political process and, and watching things like this unfold does not help that. It certainly doesn't. One thing I was going to ask you about Doug Ford, but we've talked a lot about it. Uh, what's going on with FTX? Because you've been tweeting about it today. We're watching something unbelievable happen in the uh, cyber currency world, or the cryptocurrency world, I should say. Uh, this is a big one. I, you know, it, it strikes me as being something we haven't paid a lot of attention to, but something very big is unfolding as we speak. Yeah, it's it's kind of remarkable. You know, there's a uh, a, a gentleman who who was you know a billionaire as of a few days ago. Apparently, he is bankrupt now. But uh, the owner of one of the bigger crypto exchanges uh, in the world suddenly, you know, that the, there was concern about the solvency of his exchange. He was going to get bought out by one of his rivals. Then that didn't happen, and it just sort of was all falling apart. And uh, you know, I, I saw one market watcher suggest that this this is kind of the Lehman Brothers moment for crypto, uh, in the same way that Lehman Brothers failing precipitated the, the financial crash in 2007. Uh, the good news here is that this isn't going to infect the rest of the economy. It's not going to bring down, you know, global markets. Uh, if you're not invested in crypto, you may not even notice this, but a lot of people are invested in crypto and, and quite heavily invested. And, and this is really kind of a, a come to Jesus moment for, for this whole new part of the economy, you know, it, it really kind of soared on, on expectations and hope and promise for the future. And I think we're going to find out just how much of this is actually real and just how much of it is, is, is not. And a lot of people are, are losing a lot of money right now. Um, and, you know, it, you know, it's not going to affect our pensions. It's not going to affect, uh, you know, maybe our jobs, but it is definitely worth paying attention to. Yeah, and bringing down other uh, other cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin alongside with it. Max Fawcett, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on.